This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And uh, Guy Rundle's one of Australia's most astute, funny and flexible writers. Uh, as a journalist, who knows how many articles he's written, especially for Crikey, where he's given a very long rope or perhaps <laughs> no rope at all <laughs> to cover Australian politics and culture and travel internationally. Uh, Guy's also written more than a dozen books and essays, co-created theatre shows and television series and made ends meet as a freelancer for something like three decades. And for our reading pleasure, he's pulled together an anthology uh, with a select number of these works. It's called Practice Journalism, Essays and Criticism and it's great to have you back in at Triple R, Guy. Welcome. Great. Thanks very much for being here. And you've, um, you've been prolific for so many years. How on earth did you go about selecting, I don't know how many, a couple of dozen articles for this anthology? Yeah, I think it's a I hope it's a few more than that. I think it's about 40 or 50 out of... Oh, was it? Uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> out of hundreds. It took a couple of years. It took about three different goes. Um, the first go was something like 400,000 words and then I just collapsed for about six months and then we came back to it and then, and then eventually I was in Sydney last year for something else which fell apart and so I just locked myself in a hotel room for a couple of days and finally pulled the list together of about... I think it was about 180,000 words. And with editor Chris Fike, we pulled it down to about 140, which was pretty generous of them. They usually don't publish at that length. So that was good. And so some of the pieces are, in a way, time-specific about particular elections coming up. You're out on the campaign trail with people like Bob Catter at the Liberal Party's campaign launch um, in 2013. I guess when you're pulling together these articles, do you look for something that's kind of timeless in the piece that's written about something that is time-specific? Yes, I think that's right. I think, I mean, there's a half a dozen stuff about liberals, you know, half a dozen pieces. That one seems to come together as crystallising the moment when Tony Abbott was in the ascendant and there was the great good luck that it was in the... The launch was in the Queensland, the QPAC, uh, Brisbane Performing Arts Centre, and there was a Greece revival uh, con- convention in underneath. So, you know, the 50s were back upstairs and downstairs. <laughs> it was just an extraordinary afternoon. And... and and so there's been there's a few of those um, sort of interspersed, you know, with uh, with pieces that are more analytical. Mm. Yeah, and it, I mean that was just so funny. So many of these pieces are funny or have funny moments in them, and that Greece revival get together at the same time was hilarious. But not only that, you 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 have this great knack of putting some other context in there. So they're they're in a building that Joe Bjorki Peterson mm. put together, and then you don't leave it there. You sort of add. And he probably banned everything in it for the next 20 years. And, I mean, that's funny, but it's so insightful. And, I mean, it seems like you have a lot of fun with with your work. Yeah, I do. One of the things, I mean, the journalists I've always, and the writers I've always admired have been people who are looking for the rich social context. And that goes all the way back through people like Hunter Thompson and Joan Didion and AJ Liebling and things like that, people like that. And they're trying, you know, if you want to know what a city was, what New York was like in the 30s, you read Liebling and he'll talk about um, the people called the telephone booth Indians, as they were called then, which were, who were these sort of impecunious 
um, uh, showbiz agents who didn't have their own office. They would just sit in a phone booth and use the phone booth as their number and that sort of thing. And if you can get details like that from the present uh, and put it together with the politics, I think that's pretty important at the moment because a lot of the political journalism we've got is very dead and dry and just focuses on, you know, who's ahead of who, who's behind who, that sort of thing. So in an era when politics is collapsing in many ways as, as a representation of what we really want, talking about the context of it is, is pretty important. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, I guess, given the, the reductions in jobs and shrinking newsrooms around the country over the past kind of 10, 15 years or so. You write in your introduction that if you had followed the traditional cadetship route, that you would never have been able to write the way that you do because yeah. you would have had that kind of creativity beaten out of you so uh, how have you managed to do your thing and make <laughs> yeah, a that's a it? very good question <laughs> look i've been extremely lucky um in many ways i came in at the end of network television when there was still only four and a half channels and uh and you could get a job writing tv comedy for a ludicrous amount of money uh because the shows you know went out to four or five million people and and uh, the money was huge and I was doing that in parallel with writing fairly abstruse left-wing politics for Arena magazine and that sort of thing. Um, and I did, you know, uh, there were still things like the Melbourne Times newspaper was still around and, and that was a place where dozens of people got their start as theatre reviewers or book reviewers or whatever. You could, you know, as long as you just kept turning up, you'd eventually get a gig. Um, and so one thing after the other has tumbled along and crikey was a piece of great good luck because it, nobody knew what it was. Um, Stephen Main started it as a scandal sheet and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Eric Beecher bought it and it, it became a, a more varied place of writing and they just let me experiment really because you know they needed the experiment and I wanted to just see what you could do with certain types of writing. Yeah, and I mean, you had what Jonathan Green as an editor, uh, Sophie Black, who mm. Triple R listeners know really well, um, Marnie Cordell, like, and they've yep. just let you do it. Well, that's right, yes. They've, they've, they have wisely put the brake <laughs> on certain things and then there have been uh, other times when the editor and I were in a, you know, folie deux and we've both gone, should we put, leave this in and go, yeah, that'll be all right, and it <laughs> clearly wasn't. Um, so we've, we've had that, but... It's been great. Crikey is a very unique thing because it's, you know, it's still an email newsletter, uh, which is like, you know, sort of being a, a sort of telexed um, sort of <laughs> publication. It, 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 it goes out in this way and it's been whatever we've wanted it to be in, in, in certain different ways. My argument's always been that... There used to be all types of different writing in the newspapers and the media and a lot of it shrank and people missed it and wanted that sort of stuff and, and that was a space to do it. Mm. And you do such a, a great job of, of um, I guess, distilling uh, events as they're happening and, and writing about them in such a unique way. And, and some of the pieces that aren't in this book that you've written about in, in Crikey mm. most recently do that, such as about the, the student strike for climate mm. on Friday. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the horrible incident in Christchurch mm -hmm. last week because you've edited a book on the mass shooting in Norway a few years back. That was, of course, perpetrated by far-right extremist Anders Breivik. And you talk in that book about the role of the 
media in kind of perpetuating these sorts of really negative sentiments um, and when these horrible events happen the media haven't really been willing to take responsibility for how their reportage or how mm. their coverage has kind of fed into that sort of cultural dynamic how do you read what's happened over the past few days and the public response to that it's interesting i think because because brenton tarrant seems to be a new type of um operative in this sort of this sort of world i'm sure at some point you know um he was reading andrew bolt and people like that but it's clear from his manifesto or his document whatever one wants to call it without aggrandizing it and the stuff he's written on 8chan which they've preserved as a thread um that uh, that he's also then to a degree self-radicalised as, as part of this global right-wing, you know, uh, idea that the white race is being uh, bred out uh, by a higher breeding, higher uh, birth rate immigrants and that sort of thing. Um, it's obvious that the, the News Corp media and, and other right-wing media have created, you know, a stew of, of extreme racism and pushed centre-right politics into a racist, xenophobic, nativist sort of uh, uh, politics. Um, but then a whole sort of other underworld has taken off that doesn't particularly need them anymore, and that's what's interesting. And now that right, Bolt and all these people are desperately trying to either pin someone like Tarrant on the left because he talks about green stuff occasionally or they're they're trying to disown it and trying to pedal back so so um they've reaped we've reaped what they've sown mm. and how do, I mean you describe yourself as an activist as, as well as a, a writer and journalist how I mean have let's say progressives broadly speaking responded and and, and what is the best way to, to response to these sorts of events I think uh, one of the interesting things is is I think the first thing we have to do is accurately analyse what's going on so we have true information. I think one of the things that progressives have to be careful of is grabbing any event and, and putting it, shoehorning it into a, a specific uh, interpretation. It seems to me the most important thing about Brenton Tarrant is he identifies with a global right-wing movement, which is, you know, and that that is related to things like Hungary's government, Victor Orban's government, you know, which is really repressing the Roma people. And, you know, he says he admires China. Well, why does he admire China? Because it's a totalitarian state, you know, exterminating Muslim culture in its Western regions and so forth and so on. So he's picking and choosing from, from things. I don't see him as particularly related to... Um, a particular form of Australian racism. You know, he's not in that mode of... He's not in the old Pauline Hanson mode of the Aborigines are getting all this money and that sort of thing. Barely mentions that. He's not really interested in being Australian. And that's a new sort of person. So I don't think his racism is coming from those settler colonial traditions, which a lot of people are trying to pin on on him and if we we just keep enrolling people into that fairly narrow thing well, then we're going to miss where where these people are coming from and and what's coming next mm. and you've spent a lot of time in the US over I don't know, several years now, decades. And, I mean, are you seeing that as being more familiar there or is it totally mm. different? No, it's it's absolutely because there are dozens of militias intersecting groups and people who have 
um, sort of uh, withdrawn from mainstream politics in that conscious way that Tarrant has and started to think of themselves as soldiers uh, in a war in, in one way or another. Um, and one of the interesting things is is that this sort of violence may now be resulting from the failure of people like Trump to to become the person they thought he would be. You know, it's ob- it's becoming obvious now, even to the most blinkered Trump supporter, that he's a clown, that he can't get much done, that he's a bit of a buffoon. And, and so as he decays, as this latest promise of a sort of renewal of a, a vanished world decays, well, what comes next? What, come, what would come next would seem to be um, this great refusal, you know, this idea that, that the existential act of violence um, is the way to, uh, to assert yourself uh, when the world is trying to crush everything you believe in. Yeah, and you've, um, I mean, you've covered primaries, you've covered uh, uh, US elections. Will you go back for, for the next one? Yeah, not, not at the same length I used to. I can't do four months in, you know, motels in Waxahachie <laughs> anymore. It's just this is, there comes a point in one's life uh, when that's just sad. But I'll, I'll go back for a couple of weeks at a time. I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens, you know, obviously in the Democrat primaries which will now have about 30 contestants it's like some demented reality show you know everybody's on an island so so that'll be interesting to see how that winnows its way out the new hampshire primaries will be interesting california and then the election itself definitely speaking with guy rundle all about his brand new anthology of his writing going back over around about two decades called practice journalism essays and criticism which is out through black ink and i know you've also been following brexit negotiations very closely (laughs) and people's eyes might roll as we mentioned Brexit because it's got kind of very complex with these votes and and delays to Mm. to when the UK um when the UK may leave uh, the EU and so on will you be heading over there anytime yeah I'm waiting to see what happens I mean I'll head over there in the next couple of days if if the EU the next The next stage in this is the EU has to decide whether it will grant Britain an extension or not. Now, it it should do, but all 27 nations have to agree to, uh, you know, so it would only take Malta or Bulgaria or Finland or whoever to say, no, that's it, you know, you're done. And Britain will be exiting on March the 29th, at which point I'm going to go over and, and watch them fight for the last tins of herring in the, in the supermarkets. Or the, you know, I really, yeah, it will be very interesting to see what happens when a country actually changes its sovereignty and its, its international affiliation so radically and so drastically and possibly in a way that nobody really intended to do. <laughs> I know. Well, I was, I was saying to a, an English friend of mine, I said, oh, um, Theresa May sort of lost her voice and yeah. I was started to feel sorry for her and she goes, yeah. don't feel sorry for her. You know, she was really unsympathetic. I mean, what, where, what's your take on, on how she's handled this really unprecedented situation? Well, it's, it's really interesting, isn't she? she you know, she's a, she was a Remainer and then she got elected, you know, so she committed herself to the leave process. Now, the point is it's an impossible process. I mean, there is no, you know, the, the whole thing was dodged up we're inside the Tory party. David Cameron granted them a referendum to get him, them off his backs. Everybody thought Remain would win. You know, and oh no, they, you know, leave went and won, which was possibly the last thing they wanted. And there's actually no way to leave, you know, without, um, with this hybrid 
uh, state you've got, which includes part of Ireland. This is the problem, that they're being... They're caught on their own colonialism. You know, they created Northern Ireland as, as an earlier backstop, so to speak, to, uh, 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 to, to preserve the empire. And now uh, that screws them up. So I don't, you know, and now the point is that, that everybody goes, well, Theresa May has been a terrible negotiator and uh, a terrible leader. She may have been, but I, I can't actually think of what else one would have done. I'm not, I'm not one of those... You know, one of the irritating things about a certain type of political journalism is going, oh, of course, if you'd done X, Y and Z, you know, it would have been all right. If only I had been, you know, a prime minister instead of a, <laughs> a shit-kicking daily journalist. Um, you know, just look at it. So, so yeah, when a situation's impossible, it's impossible. And that, that's, really, that's really what's interesting. Brexit was built on so much nostalgia uh, about what would occur. The honest thing to do would have been a leave campaign which said, look, we're going to leave, you know, uh, the EU to get some control of our country back in terms of direct parliament and not, not having to subscribe to EU laws, but you're going to be poorer and you're going to be da-da-da-da-da, and that would have been an interesting, honest... It would have been, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, which been, is the one thing they never would do. Of course. Well, there's been talk of, of potentially another referendum to see, I guess, if the people, you know, really do yeah. want to leave the EU, um, and there's the idea that that could be seen as quite undemocratic because the people have kind of, right. you know, already spoken, but based on your experience in the UK and speaking to people on the street, do you think they would be happy with another opportunity to vote on this? And, and if so, which way do you think they'd go? I think it's generally accepted that Remain would win if there was another referendum, just because everybody can see what a cluster um, it is now. And also because there were a series, a number of people who voted leave basically for shits and giggles. And uh, they... Um, uh, uh, and they now regret it bitterly, so they would reverse their vote. Um, the the I mean, the interesting thing about democracy is, what's democratic? You know, the referendum was set by parliament, by parliamentarians. The terms of it were set by parliament. So then, it, then it's projected onto a people. They vote according to the choices they're given. Uh, then it turns out that there is no good process to enact what they're voted for it's like going to buy a car and finding out it's a dog you're not then required to buy the car you know you can renegotiate mm. so what is democratic you know and that's when you get to the point where you go uh, the whole idea that just setting a referendum is a democracy and the peoples have spoken is is a fiction it's mm. just a fiction so what's your approach when you you know if you if if the eu says nup you can you can leave at the date prescribed. Yeah. What do you do? You you rock up on a plane I and then and then you start right there on the plane, thinking, looking around you, all the other people that have done the same as you. Absolutely, yeah, you'll be full of journalists. But it's also you, you don't want to write too many airplane uh, airport articles. You can see this in some foreign coverage. I saw this when there was a, a military coup in Honduras uh, a few years ago. You, there are about eight articles in the airport. I spoke to Raymond, you know, who is such and such and such and such, you know, who's run the candy counter and every every year fools nobody. But, I mean, you know, what's happened is they've set aside this uh, two-kilometre stretch of, of the M4, I think it is, motorway near Dover as a lorry park to, you know... Nobody knows what's going to happen at these customs barriers. Nobody knows what's going to happen at Calais, uh, at Dover on the other side. Uh, so that will be interesting. Nobody knows what's... You know, there will be... So that's one thing to see. There will be protests 
you know, there will be meetings, there will be uh, assemblies in Parliament Square and that sort of thing. And then you've got Scottish nationalism um, and you've got Irish, you know, Sinn Féin saying, you know, as soon as... As soon as this has happened, there's a starting gun for a second Scottish referendum and for a referendum in Ireland uh, on both sides of the Northern Irish-Irish border. So what they've really done is is fast-forwarded, if this happens, the breakup of the United Kingdom. So it's an extraordinary... So there's lots to do. I mean, results. there's yeah. one essay on, on um, Bob Catter that yeah. uh, Dylan and I both really enjoyed in the book. We had a big laugh. And in that, the, you, you write... I pretended to be a journalist for a moment and I asked him a question because you don't always necessarily sit there and ask politicians questions, do you? You're you're talking to other people. Yeah, I always like when something is actually happening, you know, when there's physical sort of action, when, when the daily process of life gets disrupted by an event, by chaos. So I enjoy those sort of, you know, I enjoy the sort of Ron Paul conventions um, or, or, or appearances in, in, in one of the elections where everything's insane or Mitt Romney going to the Daytona Bikers Festival and that sort of thing. It, it, it seems to me that, that these sorts of events um, are what people do with their lives. And so when you have a great disruption like Brexit... You know, it's 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 what is happening in all these places where life no longer uh, occurs. You know, where there's an actual interruption. You know, so so that's when truth emerges, really. So you're off to the UK very soon, and and we'll be able to read your work in Crikey. But what about here at home? There's a federal election coming up later <sighs> this year, in just a few months. Will you be be back oh, in the country I'll be on covering the road that? With or? Bill Shorten for weeks. I can't imagine the <laughs> excitement of uh, of the Bill Shorten revolution. Yeah, I'll cover it. Um, I'd like to try and do some. Uh, I'd like to tr- try and do some of the smaller seats and the more interesting candidates. And uh, you know, I sort of, on the same age, I'm slightly older than Bill Short. Now this is the thing you over, you streak past the politicians. I was in student politics the same time as Bill Shorten was. So there's something melancholy about being on the bus with <laughs> someone you saw, you know, eating twisties out of a puddle of beer in a, you know, student <laughs> union cafe at the NUS convention in 1986. Well, there's a story there. <laughs> yeah, I know. There you go. But so I, I'm interested in the, uh, you know, what's happened with, um, you know, ever since Cathy McGowan took the seat of Indi, you know, there's been rural networks building, you know, that have started to displace the, um, the National Party. And that sort of thing, the real rural revolution of people saying we're not represented by this party anymore, but, you know, we're putting up independent candidates and organising themselves in networks that aren't political parties and, and that sort of thing. So there's a, there's a there's going to be a whole lot of interesting things happening in this election that aren't that much to do with the leaders. And I suspect that, the you know, the leader buses this time will be different. It won't be, you know, 30 journos um, crammed onto these buses watching uh, Bill Shorten open a pickle factory or, or something like that. They'll put a dozen sort of very junior journos on to make, you know, just in case someone gets shot or something. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, which is 90% of the reason anybody's there if something happens again. And uh, so, yeah, so, so it'll... But, but elections are always interesting, no matter how cynical you get about 
the actual process by which politicians are chosen, you know, elections do disrupt once again. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, recently you were talking about the sort of style of political journalism that we sort of get everywhere. And we yeah. saw a little break from that when, you know, a whole lot of journos headed to Christmas Island with the Prime Minister recently. And yeah. people were like, well, why are we even here? And wrote that and said that. And we don't see behind the curtain that much into the way journalists think we do with you and I think you've been you know characterized as you know gonzo in style which you reject um in in some ways but this idea that you do let us in to your thought processes and I imagine you're going to keep doing that yeah I don't have the courage to be full gonzo is when you actually interrupt the process you know you get drunk and stoned enough to perform a citizen's arrest on Julie Bishop or something like that, you know, uh, while wearing a banana costume. That's that's the full gonzo. <laughs> um, the, uh, but I think that sort of thing where you do actually, uh, you know, report on where you are, what, who you're talking to, what the other journos are saying, what's happening, the absurdity of a, you know, a shopping centre walk around and, and all those sorts of things put that absurdity right into the centre of the thing. One of the things about this sort of journalism is, in part, it comes from not being able to write the same article anymore um, and saying, look, I can't churn out another sort of thing. So you you try and do something else. So you push it and push it until the genre is exhausted and then you find some other way of doing it. And that's I think that's what you saw at the Christmas Island stuff. Even these journos who are you know, straight down the line and and Australian political journalism is as boring as it's ever been, you know. It used to be more interesting than this. The write-ups used to be have more colour in life. But even they couldn't play a straight Mm -hmm. bat anymore. They had to go meta uh, and talk about what a simulation this was, you know. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, we had someone egged uh, (laughs) recently and I learnt from you, and I missed this in 2004, that... Bob Catter egged the Beatles. And that yeah. was one little... <laughs> no, that's old news to everybody else. <laughs> well, yeah, just because, um, you know, egging's top of the pops at the moment. But that, I mean, that is was really interesting to me in this um, idea that their Bob Catter is saying Beatlemania is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to show it with a whole bunch of eggs. Yeah. Um, is, you know, let me into the, the way he really thought. That was really interesting because they'd... Um, yeah, because... Billy Graham had come through, the great evangelist, you know, and he'd done this huge tour of Australia uh, a few years earlier and he'd, he'd, he'd actually lived in Sydney in the, the out, you know, what was then hill country, the seven hills around Sydney uh, area that's now obviously built up. And, uh, and that's where all the Sydney, all the Hillsong stuff comes from. He actually changed the whole culture of Australia just by staying there. And Catter and his young Christian nationals thought that the the idolatry of, of, you know, the Beatle crowds was, was, was an anti-Christian, you know, so that they had to intervene. So, and, you know, and that's from a period when things actually did mean something. And then, then poor old Bob in that, in that article, you know, the last thing he's at is the, the Innes Vale or something, whatever it is, Corn Festival. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> all these sort of trucks going around and all these kids, you know, sort of acting out scenes from Glee, you know, 11-year-olds in fishnets and leotards. Dancing and to Lady Gaga. Lady the back Gaga. And, and Bob <laughs> just waving at the back, just not knowing. Yeah, fun times. Amazing. <laughs> Would you stay on the trail with Bob Catter all year if you could? No, 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 no. Um, no, he's a sort of, oh, that would be, 
that would be you'd like lose yourself. A bit. That would be like apocalypse now. I'd be like, man, <laughs> so at some point you'd go, you know, you'd, you'd be up in the hill country with Bob. Um, no, there, there isn't enough interest in someone like. There, there isn't enough interest in anybody, I think, to to study them for a year mm. or something like that in what they're doing. I think you could, uh, you know, the one thing one could do for something like a year, and, and one, I might do this, is this transformation of politics in rural Australia. You know, I did an article which didn't make it in here about the Liverpool Plains, um, the Shenhua Mine and the farmers organising against that and, you know, working with... the. Um, you know, the local uh, Indigenous people, the Gamilaroi and, and other people and the sort of the tensions and the connections and the uh, that sort of thing which, which shadow that and the, 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 the way in which a very conservative group of people like white farmers in the Liverpool Plains have to transform themselves under the undeniable fact that their own political party wants to dig up their land and, and sell it to a Chinese mining concern. Um, and uh, and that contradiction has been, you know, running right through New South Wales and Queensland and, and that sort of thing, and it, it's, it's transforming things. But it's not just transforming politics, it's transforming those communities and the way mm. they think about themselves, and, and, and that's interesting. We've kept you so long, we're late for our next guest. It's been great having a chat. Um, oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank and, you very uh, much. And enjoyed it, and uh, that... Um, story he was just talking about didn't make it in but a lot of other stuff did it's called practice journalism essays and criticism it's guy rundle's anthology out through black ink you can get your hands on it now and uh thanks and enjoy the next couple of months we'll be uh, looking at your reports from the uk and beyond thanks very much and if you've been following u.s politics you'll be familiar with the idea of the green new deal it references franklin d roosevelt's uh, new deal introduced after the great depression and which fully focused the u.s government on that job of reinvigorating the economy. A Democratic congressional uh, representative from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, made headlines last month with her 14-page Green New Deal platform, which calls on the US government to tackle the challenges of climate change with vigour. It, uh, it's earned a lot of influential backers and a lot of headlines, def- despite it not being a really brand new idea. It's been around for about 10 years, but perhaps um, this idea's time has come. And there's an info evening coming up at Friends of the Earth in Melbourne on this, on the Green New Deal, and Cam Walker's on the line to talk about it. It's great to have you, Cam. Yeah, thanks. Good to good to be here. And so this idea's been around for, yeah, about a decade or so, but, uh, but that uh, New York congressional uh, representative has brought it to our attention, and she's got a lot of backers for it. So maybe, um, maybe just give us some ideas of what the Green New Deal is calling for. Yeah, she certainly has. I think it it was sitting out there on the fringes of US debate and has been there since about 2007 when the idea was launched. I think it kind of resonates more there because there's this cultural memory of the Great Depression and the the New Deal uh, from Franklin D. Roosevelt, as you mentioned in the intro. Uh, So it doesn't possibly have the same kind of resonance here, but it, it, it does make sense. I think that what's happening is we know that climate change is bearing down on us. We know we need to act uh, in a really radical way to avoid catastrophic climate change. That means rebuilding our economy. And we also need to make sure that no one is left behind. And I guess that's the strength of the Green New Deal is it's a set of economic programs. It's intended to address climate change, but it's also intended to address economic inequality in society. Now, in the States, of course, they have a lot of things we don't have. For instance, they don't have uh, universal health care, and so they've got to kind of deal with that. And, you know, it, it 
the way it manifests will be quite different in the United States, but certainly as a concept it can be brought here. And what it recommends is the transformation of the economy to serve the planet, but also to serve the community. What's interesting to me, Cam, from watching this play out over in the US is that the, it is a, a relatively ambitious proposal. It's a non-binding resolution at this stage, but it's won the backing of a whole range of Democrats. Um, my understanding, most of the presidential candidates and some of those who would not previously have nominated climate change as one of their priorities, such as Chuck Schumer in the Senate. Are you surprised at all that this has gained traction over there? Um, I think what happened there is exactly what's happening here. So if you look at conservative politicians that have been anti-action on climate change for years, if not decades, are all changing their spots because they realise that polling shows that people actually want action. So the conservatives have been behind the times and they're now playing catch-up. And I think the moderates, such as all the uh, Democrat moderates in the United States that are now backing this, have kind of been sitting on the fence and not wanted to be, you know, pushing too hard on climate change. And they realise they're actually out of step with the community. So as you say, all these very high-profile, very middle-of-the-road Democrats are jumping on this. But also, more than 300 environmental groups are on board over there, you know, and all the large environmental groups, a growing number of unions and a growing number of social justice organisations. So I think that it's just one of those things. It landed at the right time. It makes sense. It resonates with people. And I think we understand that climate change, in, in our bones, we know that climate change is about human rights as much as it is about, you know, extreme weather. And if we're going to find a solution, it's got a hardwiring social justice. And so uh, this is a model that does that. Yeah, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, uh, you know, one of the youngest people in Congress. And uh, we saw, you know, young people here in Melbourne and all over the world actually out on the streets on Friday. And they seem to me to be calling for and looking for ideas like this, demanding action. And do you think that's part of why it's galvanising a lot of support? Oh, absolutely. And I think the thing the thing about the student strike is, you know, that has come because of the failure of the current leadership federally uh, to take climate change seriously. You know, young people are just getting sick of it. Then it's not being addressed. You know, it's not being taken seriously. We've got business as usual and they're, you know, getting out on the streets. And they have very clear demands around transition to renewables, uh, stopping the Adani mine and rapidly moving beyond fossil fuels. So the demands of the strike, which happened in Melbourne and 60 places around the country on Friday, are entirely consistent with the Green New Deal. And I think that's also why many people realise this isn't just about changing the technology from coal to renewables. Um, it's about changing the social contract as well. And I think that's why it's resonating with so many people, including many younger people. Yeah, I'm interested in the, the kind of symbolic value, I guess, both of the climate strike last Friday all around the world and also of this idea of the Green New Deal because I guess on one level you could say, particularly with the Green New Deal, it's, it is quite broad. There are no binding uh, commitments as part of it at this stage, yet in proposing it, it has kind of galvanised a whole uh, range of people from uh, kind of across the political spectrum to bring about, uh, you know, efforts to mitigate the effects of climate change and so on. And I wonder if with the, the climate strikes on Friday and, and whether we may see more of those, what this might mean for the way in which politicians engage with this issue um, here in Australia and in, in the US and further abroad as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. So in Australia, if you think back to the marriage equality debate, the postal ballot, a huge number of young people signed up to be able to vote and hence vote in that ballot. And I think what's happening is this very this glacial pace of change that's happening in Australia is spurring a lot of young people to get involved politically and young people tend to be very progressive. So as they get involved and as they get a voting age, that's going to start to shift the debate. Um, it's clear from the strike that happened. And if you think about it, 150,000 people nationwide were out on the streets on Friday. These are massive mobilisations. And they're in places like Rockhampton and, and Gunnedah and Wagga Wagga. You know, it wasn't just Melbourne. It was nationwide. This is really indicative of something new. Um, it's a new stage of leadership and it's a new stage of mobilisation. And it's consistent with the polling that shows that most people want further action. So I think that what's happened is the community has got well ahead of the political establishment, particularly at the federal level. They're now trying to, you know, play catch up, but they're unable to do it because they're so wedded to the old model of fossil fuels and, you know, kind of moving slowly on climate change. And I think Green New Deal as a concept, which is an umbrella, actually provides a fantastic opportunity for everyone to come on board to see themselves in that. And if you look at the program, it is very broad. The, the Green New Deal goes from talking about living wage through to high-speed rail and pretty much everything in between. So there really is something for everyone in there if they're interested in a more progressive and fair society and a sustainable society that's dealing with climate change. It's now 26 past nine. You're with Callie and Dylan on The Grapevine. We're talking with Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth about the idea of a Green New Deal. And, I mean, of course, it's not without its critics and, and also people that are supportive of it but have concerns about how such a thing could be could get off the ground and I mean one um, some of those criticisms are coming from outside of the US saying well the new deal is about the US and the green new deal has to be global can we have like a global new deal a global green new deal that sort of thing I mean uh, Friends of the Earth is an is an international organization and you know you've got really strong representation in um countries that are nowhere near as wealthy as the US. Is this the sort of questions coming out of, of those groups, Cam? Absolutely it is. So our group in the United States has backed the Green New Deal and is very involved in the campaign. Uh, there's a thing called the Sunrise Movement, which is kind of driving the, the grassroots support for the Green New Deal. But uh, internationally, it's very clear from our member groups in places like Africa and Latin America that this has to be about the social contract and not just the technology. So that's really important that this isn't just about swapping technologies, it's actually about bringing people out of poverty. Um, but it's seen as a pathway to do that because um, the Green New Deal does talk about the living wage concept, it does talk about retraining for workers, it does talk about repairing and upgrading infrastructure, so a massive development of, of what they call green jobs, energy efficiency, localised energy, that sort of thing, which will actually benefit people in the majority world. So yes, we need to make sure it's about the rebuilding of the social contract uh, and this is in obviously in a time where there's this atomisation and increasing isolation and increasing cynicism in, cynicism in mainstream politics. So I think it also offers a counter-narrative because we know that the system isn't working for most of us, but we're not really sure what alternatives might be. And this is a, a package that allows us to think about the social uh, as well as the technological as we respond to climate change.
change. Yeah, and I've been reading a lot about it. You know, people have been going to this idea of, you know, modern monetary theory and saying, well, governments can just print money to make this stuff happen. And, you know, as long as we deal with inflation and other people saying, well, you know, if we're going to go back in time and look at economic ideas, maybe we should be looking at the Marshall Plan the green, and call it the Green Marshall Plan where there was a big transfer of, of wealth really from, from the US to Europe at that time to rebuild after the Second World War. That's kind of what's needed here. And I mean, do you think, without muttering, muddying the waters, do you think these kinds of ideas will somehow integrate with the Green New Deal or, or you know, will there be people pulling it all in different directions? I mean, where could it go, I wonder? It has to keep growing. So the ideas of the Marshall Plan, that rebuilding, that, you know, direct intervention in the economy, we need, we're going to have to have that conversation. We're going to have to talk about agriculture. And obviously here in Australia, we have the huge debate about the inland rivers, which are dying and, you know, why are they dying and how much water is being taken by large uh, cotton growers, for instance. There's a really big debate. So the concept is a useful concept, but it needs to be really populated with thought and it needs to be expanded. So it's really the way we see it is a thought starter for the conversation that many people know we need to have. And that's why we've framed our session on Thursday as a kind of crowdsourced, bring your ideas along about what could be in a Green New Deal. We're not saying here it is off the shelf. We're saying it's a really good concept because it deals with the social dimensions and the climate dimensions, but let's create the vision together. It's not something you can pull on the shelf. It has to be a concept that's allowed to grow and really deepen as more and more people get involved in it. Yeah, and from I've actually read the, the resolution put forward by Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez over the weekend, and it's really interesting. I mean, often when you hear politicians, particularly in America, speaking about these types of reforms, they uh, kind of rely on this um, mythology surrounding, you know, the, the glory of the nation, the glory of the nation-state and how, how incredible the nation is. But in that resolution, it actually highlights how the US has been, uh, you know, a huge producer proportionally of greenhouse gas emissions and that there's been worsening inequality in that country over generations um, and also that the global south has kind of suffered disproportionately from the the growth of the United States. So it's kind of a bit of an ideological shift that needs to take place, it feels to me, as well as one that could sort of get through at the political level. Absolutely, and that's why it might work. They kind of, you know, put the wagons in a circle, inward-looking nationalism of the likes of Donald Trump um, isn't going to work in a globalised economy and certainly not in a world that's confronted with climate change. So this model might actually work because it's uh, cognizant of history and it's cognizant of social justice and it's cognizant of per capita contribution to global warming. And until we start to deal with that, then the large emerging economies can't be expected to act until we look at the historic responsibility of the rich nations, the groupings like Europe, like North America, like Australia, and our historical over-contribution to global warming. So that's that's why this could work, because it's not something that's kind of stuck in the past as a, as a model. It's actually very much on the cutting edge of global solidarity and of global understanding about how climate works. So, yes, that's what gives me a lot of hope about it. 
Well, thanks for talking with us, Cam. Normally we talk about bits and bobs of what's happening politically here in Australia, but it's good to kind of tackle some of these bigger issues and really go to your knowledge about what's happening internationally. So I appreciate that. And if people are interested in uh, heading along on Thursday, uh, there is a Facebook event and you can head to the um, Friends of the Earth Melbourne website to find out more about that. Uh, And so there's a Green New Deal sort of information workshop type thing happening on Thursday if you're interested. And Cam, we'll talk to you again in a month's time. Thanks. Talk to you then. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.